You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat Series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day, all people and planet can thrive together. Hi everybody, this is Gino Borges with the Journey to Impact, a virtual fireside chat series. This Journey to Impact series is here to tell a different story of impact. While we naturally address some of the landmarks of the journey, this series is designed to create space for uncovering the emotional, mental, and spiritual challenges and successes along the path of impact. It is less about the outcomes or results of our actions, but rather the human components of what it feels like to operate in the impact world, illumining one's inner journey. Today, I'd like to welcome Jonathan Rose. Jonathan graduated from Yale University with a background in psychology and philosophy, and Jonathan founded the Jonathan Rose Companies in 1989, a multidisciplinary real estate development, planning, consulting, and investment firm. Jonathan's firm has completed $2.3 billion of transformational work in close collaboration with numerous cities and nonprofits. Jonathan's also wrote a book on how to create resilient communities, the well-tempered city, what modern science, ancient civilization, and human nature teach us about the future of urban life. Finally, Jonathan, along with his wife, is the co-founder of the Garrison Institute. This institute connects inner transformation with outer solutions to relieve suffering in the fields of trauma, education, and the environment. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Let's start off with um, that aha moment or potentially a series of micro aha moments that said, hey, you know, this might be the time to start a socially transformational real estate company. So I'm going to go back very quickly and to say that I'm very lucky that I was born with a calling. So when I was a very small child, I was deeply interested in protecting nature. Uh, I saw the kind of environmental impacts and wanted to do something about it. And I also saw the human social impacts, particularly as the um, civil rights movement grew. Uh, and, uh, and I loved real estate. I grew up in a family of developers and I loved the process of building and I wanted to put all these things together and struggled for a long time to try and figure out how to do that and found myself uh, in my family business building market rate apartments and at the same time working uh, as a board member of an inner city not-for-profit building uh, housing for homeless people and daycare centers and community learning centers and a whole series of things yearning but with no model for how to put these together so the aha was I joined uh, a group called the Social Venture Network in 1987. It was an amazing group of people. It was just getting started then. They included Ben and Jerry, who had founded Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream, and Anita Roddick and Gordon, who had founded uh, um, The Body Shop, and John Mackey, who founded Whole Foods, 
and uh, Gary Hirschfield, who founded Stonyfield Yogurt. And uh, I saw these amazing entrepreneurs who were creating really exciting, interesting businesses that were closing a lot of loops, uh, making positive impacts. They were visionary and they were real businesses. And inspired by that in 1989, I left my family business with one employee, my secretary, and started a two-person mission-focused for-profit company, focusing on the intersection of affordable housing, which is a great passion of mine, the environment, this is very early in the green building world, um, and community redevelopment. And today we are 450 people and we have over $3 billion worth of assets under management. And so the idea worked. And what is particular about um, how, how did it sort of come together that uh, affordability? Like, I mean, where was sort of there's, I'm guessing that um, you like, you know, you didn't grow up with having a potential affordable need. Perhaps maybe you did and maybe right. you didn't. Maybe you can share a little bit about um, your ovarian status, your ovarian lottery status, whether the lack thereof or very supple. And then to discuss like where was that burn for affordability and where did it become sort of a, a, a justice issue for you as opposed to just merely um, a one-dimensional creating a more boxes for people. But that the whole notion of integration, like where does that come from? I mean, people might know it intuitively, but how did it get from um, like, yes, we got to do this, but I may not know how, but I would just want to know a little bit more about where that life force for came, came for you. So it's, I feel like social justice is in my nature. It was also something my mother was very committed to. So when I, in the whole, she worked in, so I grew up in comfortable circumstances. My family, uh, I would say was comfortable when I was born, uh, you know, but my, my father was young and was making his way. And as I grew older, we became more and more comfortable and my family, uh, by the time I was in college, it was prosperous. And um, so I was never of want. And, uh, you know, I, the first house I lived in was a thousand square feet. It was, so it wasn't, you know, we weren't in the, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth, but I was born in comfort, never had want. And as I said, and grew up in continually improving circumstances. So the, um, So I had, but I always had both innately and then exposed through my mother, particularly this desire, not only desire to be of help, but my father was also very philanthropic and very involved in the Federation of Jewish Philanthropies. And his story, a great deal of his time was involved with things like the Children's Aid Society and things. So the idea of the issues of inner city poverty and its alleviation were part of the dinner table conversation and modeled for me. Uh, when I was uh, about 10, and when I was very little, I used to go visit uh, my father's construction sites on vacations and weekends. I used to actually go with him and create punch lists and all this. So I kind of grew up loving the building. And there were, but when I was about 10, he started on a program that lasted for a couple of years to build affordable housing. So this is now 1962 to, um, as a, social contribution to New York. And um, it was limited profit, 
development. And I followed that project with enormous interest and passion. You know, I visited it often and I watched it be constructed. And then when it was complete, I went to the rental office where my, which was just filled with a line of moderate income working class people who needed a place to live, who were like, and you saw on their faces, they were clutching these application papers and you saw, desperation is not the right word, but the intensity of their desire to have a better place to live. Um, I wanted to do more. I could see it was a pathway to, uh, it was a pathway for families. And there's a whole lot of research now I know that about how housing is a platform for opportunity. That I have a friend who says, for example, it's very hard to do homework when you live under a bridge. So we know that uh, how important housing is. Then, you know, the 60s happened in Fuller Swing and I was a hippie and, and hippies were, you know, we were all into intentional communities and, and utopias. And so then beyond just what is the housing box or boxes building, begin to think of, so what kind of, what does it take to recreate community or what are healthy communities? What are thriving communities? What are, um, uh, so, so my interest and, and the last piece was, I was always deeply interested in the environment. Uh, as a small child, I grew up in the suburbs. I played outdoors in nature. I loved nature. I could feel um, the crime the, against nature of pollution and um, wanted to heal that too. Um, so I began to really wrestle with it, think about it, try and um, integrate how do you take this thing about social justice and affordability and housing and environment and really it's been my life's work from a very from certainly my teens to try and figure out how i put those together and uh, you mentioned my book my book which you know took several years to write but the reality is i've been writing it all my life it's the cons it was the bringing together of this thinking and research and knowledge and experience and questioning and um, this search for kind of how do you create healthier communities, particularly for lower income people. And as you fast forward to today or the last decade, how has yeah. how have those um, those three legs of the stool, affordability, environment, and community redevelopment, how have they taken shape and um, and moved through Jonathan Rose's history? Um, it started probably as some disparate, unwieldy legs, but how has it transfigured itself? So the easiest one to talk about is probably the environment. So when I started my own, well, even when I was in the family business, I kind of stepped out and did a rent of, I did a really interesting project kind of on my own. I took it like a leave of absence and in 1979, did a really innovative development in, in Tribeca. And uh, I've always wanted everything I do to be everything. So, uh, you know, I wanted to be as green as possible. And it was like impossible because I knew that paint had, I didn't even know the word VOCs, but I knew that they had some bad chemicals in them. But you could go to a paint store and say, I want a cleaner, greener paint. And they had no idea what you're talking about. I went to the lumber supplier and said, I want lumber that doesn't come from raping the rainforest. And he goes, I get my lumber from like the wholesaler. I don't know where it comes from. You know, there was no such thing as chain of title. There was no certification. And so um, you couldn't even get data really on 
how much insulation to put in a building was cost effective or whatever. So in 89, when I started my own company, shortly thereafter, and there was no such thing as lead or anything back then. So I developed my own guidelines, which kind of look like a combination of lead and there's another standard. Anyway, it kind of looks like lead today, but it was the 10 S's and there were 10 categories of impact to focus on. So the first one, by the way, was site. Oh, okay. So another thing in the um, 70s, 60s and 70s, what I also saw and then 80s was the hollowing out of our cities. And so in New York City, the South Bronx and Brooklyn, et cetera, became, were abandoned and burnt down in vast swaths of empty space. And, um, and America was rapidly suburban. So cities were shrinking, suburbs were growing. And from an environmental point of view, uh, it was very clear that uh, the automobile was an enemy of nature and walkable and mass transit locations were positive more positive for both individuals and for their economies and for the environment. Um, so early on, one of the first things was founding principle of the companies, we would only do transit focused development. Interestingly, in 1989, that was contradictory to the main theme of the market. So uh, it was almost impossible to get financing to do transit oriented development. You could only get financing with suburban sprawl development. And I kept saying to everybody, I'm future proofing these investments. And it wasn't until probably 2010 or 11 that the economic value switched and transit oriented development way outshines sprawl development today. But so, um, so location was one. So, for example, I was mentioning the 10 S's. The first was select the right site. So that has to do with location. I won't go through all the 10 S's, but they were they gave me a framework to evaluate and guide the greenness of my projects before there were external frameworks. So what makes it so much easier now is there are all these fantastic frameworks. And I helped develop one with a national not-for-profit called Enterprise Community Partners. The framework is the Enterprise Green Community Guidelines. It's the predominant greening system for affordable housing. It was designed specifically for affordable housing. So now I have a, a framework that everybody in my company can use. Uh, we partner with an amazing not-for-profit called the Healthy Building Network that does research on every material for non-toxicity, et cetera, so we can choose the greenest and healthiest materials for our residents. And, uh, and so the, the research, the tools, the systems to make go greener are significantly improved. The same thing on the social side. So we work very much to bring social health and education programs to our residents and the uh, amount of research in the efficacy of those things and reporting on it in best practices is much deeper than it was when I started them. There are not only many not-for-profits, but there are some for-profits and they're all, there's a range of really great emerging practice that we can learn, can both contribute to and learn from on that side. And the tools available to preserve affordable housing and build new affordable housing have also the financial tools have greatly increased. So when I started, whenever they would do lists of the 25 most important issues to people, usually in the bottom three or four with, uh, with definitely affordable housing and nationally on average, environment was pretty low too, um, even though it was very important to some people. And today, affordable housing is at such a crisis level, 
it's really number one, two, or three in almost every urban list. Think about San Francisco or New York City or whatever. And so um, in response, the financing tools, the systems, the, the practice of both preserving and developing affordable housing has significantly advanced. So the, in the external conditions in these fields has made it much easier to integrate. And then I have, part of my career has been to build models of this integration, prove that it can work. Um, our theory is we can't change the world. We can never do enough work to change the world, but if we create models that are successful and duplicatable, that will help. And so I've kind of been at the forefront and others too in, in modeling this integration and then seeing how it spreads. Jonathan, what are you finding currently as you move forward with this transformational work? Where do you find the biggest limitation at the moment? Like where's the biggest hurdle, the friction point, and you wanting to go? I, I suspect internally, and maybe you've even articulated a vision on where you would love the company to go, but there's there's a few items that are just intractable issues at the moment, or at least perceived intractably. Well, let's call them difficult. Okay, Not difficult. Nothing's intractable. We overcome yeah. obstacles. So um, an interesting consequence of America's uh, passion for affordability now, the, the real demand for it. So let me just back up. There are 20 million Americans who spend more than 50% of their income on housing. And because there's more suburban poverty than urban poverty, typically they're spending another 20 or 30% of their income on owning cars and car payments, et cetera. And so, the, and then if you think about uh, they have to feed and clothe their family and it, there's nothing left for education. There's no resources for daycare. Another fact, there's not a single county in America where if you work a full-time minimum wage job, you can afford to rent a two-bedroom apartment. So single parent and child. And there's only 16 counties, and they're not that big, that you can afford to rent a one-bedroom apartment. So um, there's an enormous crisis. So the way that cities and, and the federal government is really doing nothing about this. So, um, I mean, they have the low-income housing tax credit program that was enacted in 1986, and uh, there have not been new affordable housing programs for quite some time, essentially ever since. So. The way cities and states are dealing with this, they're under enormous volume pressure. Our work is about creating what we call communities of opportunity that have integrate on-site community gardens and weave in nature and are connected to mass transit and have on-site healthcare centers and after-school education programs and a whole series of things. As wonderful as this is, and as much as we can actually show that this is, has larger societal benefits, the pressure is for volume. Cities have such a deficit, they would rather build 20 or 30% more units that are good enough versus building fewer units that are extraordinary, that are nested in extraordinary communities. We're only willing to do extraordinary, this whole systems, whole thinking work. Um, that just makes it harder and harder to put projects to sit. So we're in a time in which the tide has moved in favor of creating more affordable housing, but unfortunately it's the, the cost of fully integrated solutions. So we, for the first time in our career, are finding 
funding agencies say, would you do less green to save us a little? Because all affordable housing is subsidized. We want to save the subsidy to do, to support other projects. And when somebody asks you to do less green, you've spent the last 15 minutes uh, with some heavy um, um, green desires. And not only if as a child, they used to explore the suburbs, but um, 1989, or you talked about, you really led with the environmental thumbprint as a large part of your mission. I mean, what, I mean, what goes through you as somebody who's um, you know, a thought leader, who, who knows where uh, you want the world to go, the kind of model you want to create. And then here's somebody saying, uh, Jonathan, I need you to concede on some of these green improvements. I mean, what goes through you? Like, I mean, how do you navigate that sort of that trade or, or so is it a trade for you? It is. A, so there's a, by the way, that's just one of the many trades. The other really important one, and I'll let me talk about this and then I'll integrate them is we really know the value of a resident service coordinator. So that's a person on our staff who's a social worker who's working with the residents to help them realize their needs and dreams and visions. And they're the person who brings in the third-party healthcare operators and after-school programs and all that into our projects. Their, the return on investment is enormous, but the agencies will say, you can't put that in your budget and we're not gonna fund that in your budget. And we we know how important it is to have it in our budget. So, so there are all these pressures. And yet, I so first of all, I'm sympathetic. These are not bad people. These are people who see an affordable housing crisis and a political. It's not only political; it's humanitarian, and that they have a mandate to get the largest number of units out. They're not asking us to build illegal, immoral, bad units. They're not asking us to build unsafe units. They're just asking us to build less idealistic units. So I totally appreciate the pressures on them and, and where they're coming from. So my job is then to find another source of funds or another way to get this done as best I can. So our projects had, uh, our first project had 23 sources of funds. Our typical projects have six to 12. Sometimes it works, we do the best we can. And then the other thing is, so I mentioned that out of my early work in affordability, I think I mentioned that I helped create the Enterprise Green Community Program that I, I, no, I that's new. So, so um, in the early, after my 10 S's, uh, the U.S. Green Building Council's lead program was really focused on office buildings. And so working with an amazing national affordable housing not-for-profit on whose board I sit and it's called Enterprise Community Partners, we created a green guideline. We brought together NRDC and South Face, a lot of the, the national and regional environmental groups, and we created a green guideline just for affordable housing. And um, then we went around and we now have two thirds of the states that require, if you want affordable housing funding, you have to follow these guidelines. And there are 150 cities, Boston, Washington, New York, LA, San Francisco, et cetera. If you want their funding, you have to follow these guidelines. So really what the leverage point was by greening the financing system, um, uh, you know, we created an essence mandate. So Three quarters of all affordable housing built in America today is built green, which is larger than the percentage of schools or hospitals or houses of worship. Um, we have just released a, and Enterprise now, you know, they're off and running. They've done an amazing job. 
So Enterprise has just released a new version, an even better version of these green guidelines. So that automatically means there's a pretty high minimum bar that all these cities will work <coughs> on. They can't cut you worse than the Enterprise Green Community Guidelines. So uh, the bar is pretty high for what the base level of, of work that comes with the finite that we're required to do. So that's a good thing. What do you think the key is to, um, you mentioned this idea of acknowledging the pressures of each agency has right. its own institutional imperative, essentially, um, as their own inertia, their own well-intentioned um, pathway. And yet you have suggested that, hey, our residential advisor on the ground who's bringing the services can create XYZ outcomes. What do you think the key is? Essentially, what I'm hearing you say is that, my goodness, for a small investment into one person, into one program, helping connect all the nodes in the network, we're able to amplify the whole in a way that wouldn't get amplified by us continually seeing things in agency silos. What do we need to do in the impact space to really create um, the language and also a model that demonstrates that, goodness, actually this is the probably the wisest investment we can do because it leads to X, Y, and Z. I got the answer. Yeah. So it's yeah. creating the models and then creating valid data about them. So I'm gonna give you two examples. The simpler one is we won a competition Fannie Mae put out uh, to demonstrate how housing and health could work together. So we have a project in Newark, it's a full city block, it's about, about, got about 800 residents, and this is a telemedicine project. So the grant allows us to pay and train residents to be community health advisors. They meet other residents in the lobby of the building once or twice a week, and they measure their pulse, their blood pressure, their blood oxygen level, and their weight. That goes off to a, by the internet to a medical system that analyzes it. My guess is it's doing it with algorithms. Um, but if there's anything that looks off or needs advice, uh, then it notifies a nurse to call the, the resident. And we give recommendations not only on medicine, but also on diet and exercise and stress reduction, which is yoga and meditation. Our resident health advisors then work with the resident to, um, to help them with diet and exercise, et cetera. And all of our projects have a healthy garden and access to healthy food and um, exercise rooms. Based on a, an example of, that a not-for-profit we were affiliated with did of this same system, we believe that this should be able to reduce hospital emergency room costs in the surrounding neighborhood by about $500,000 a year. If we can prove this and then do a shared savings with the hospital system, then we can, uh, the, that can pay for the program and then it becomes a virtuous circle. It becomes a circular economy. I'm always aiming, on a previous section show, you had John Fullerton, who's the dreamer of regenerative economies. So we think about regenerative Regeneration in all its forms, but regenerative economics all the time. So that would create a virtuous circle of regeneration on the health side. We've put together a partnership of 
the Harvard School of Public Health on the environmental side, the Columbia Mailman School of Public Health on the social and human side. On the of the uh, Dartmouth has an amazing health economics group that actually helped design Obamacare. Enterprise Community Partners, which has a program called Opportunity 360, which integrates 200 databases about neighborhood statistics and gives you a snapshot of the characteristics of neighborhood. And a group called NeighborWorks, which is another national not-for-profit, very experienced in working with low-income residents. And that group, we got a grant for, for them, and they've spent a year designing a 10-year longitudinal study of our work. Our goal in 2020 is to launch this study and to study every bit of what we're doing in this, what we call community of opportunity work. So not only on the social health and education side, the environmental side. And we're looking for patterns and we wanna make proof that, so I'm gonna give you an example. Low income people, because of the neighborhoods they're living in are have much higher toxic exposure. Um, diesel fumes in the air and you know, industrial plants nearby and power plants and highways and all that stuff. We know that, that continued toxicity exposure reduces, affects people's immune systems. And in low-income buildings, there's a lot of internal causes of toxicity. So for example, very poor people often uh, are living in, in crappy buildings where their landlords cut off their heat and so they heat themselves by turning on their oven, opening the oven door, and that puts a lot of particulates into the air. So one of our goals is to measure the toxic, and we're using all these non-toxic materials and non-toxic, we give them actually for free non-toxic cleaning materials, and we're creating these very healthy non-toxic environments. We wanna measure the reduction in toxicity, and we think that improves their immune systems. Low-income people are very exposed to um, mental toxins to the cognitive stress that comes from abuse and neglect and from violence and from intergenerational poverty. There's a whole series of these things and that's also very well documented. That also lowers the immune system and, it, and has very demonstrated lifelong health impacts. Our theory of change is that actually by creating a healthier in, environmental environment, and a healthier cognitive environment. That the co, just as they, we think they have co-negative effects, we think they have co-positive effects. So that's why we need both the Harvard side and the Columbia side to measure these things. But if we can prove that they do and build the data, then we can make the public policy case um, uh, to say that, that you know, public policy should be to, that it's, it's economically worth it and from a social health and educational outcome point of view, Anyway, it's a long story, but the goal is build the model, have a theory of change, build the data about it, and try and prove it. And where does the um, arts and humanities fit into the virtuous um, circle uh, for you, Jonathan? Right. Okay, so on two sides. So on the resident side, we all our work is we call in co-creation with our residents. So we ask our residents what matters to them. Low-income people are often being asked, what's the matter with you? Whenever you fill out a form for a subsidy or whatever, uh, you're really being asked, what's the matter with you? We ask them what matters to them. And first they tell us safety, health, healthy food, 
education for their kids. And almost next, what almost always comes up is arts and culture. So we partner with local not-for-profits. But even if they didn't ask, but I'm glad they do, I have another part of my theory of change, which is that as we know, the jobs of the 21st century are gonna be very different from the jobs of the past. So let's go to the way, way past 50,000 years ago when humanity went through an enormous change. And the change came with the ability of humans to have symbolic thought. And simultaneously what emerged from that was language, religion, science, uh, and art. And we see this confluence of these, these aspects of civilization happening almost simultaneously. And we can tell, for example, there was religion because all of a sudden you see the way human burials were doing were being done in a more formalistic way. We know there was science because we found bones with markings in them, like in their Fibonacci series and show mathematical knowledge. We, music we know because there were flutes, etc. So the point is that the transformation of humanity came from our ability to have symbolic thought. And the industrial age treated most humans as cheaper machines or machine attendants or machine companions. The work of the 21st century will be work that requires the cognitive capacity for symbolic language. So whether it's coding or whether it's creating or you know the, the machines and AI and all that are gonna take over most of that, the machine work. So if we, so training people for the knowledge and to contribute in the 21st century is not just about teaching them coding or teaching them technical things. It's about a different way of thinking, which is relational, which is actually the essence of all spiritual traditions too, which is to think in relation rather than in, in agency uh, or, um, and the most amazing way to do that is with music and art. And we know that uh, children who, you know, there's all this work with kids in inner city orchestras and stuff like that, that children who learn music you know, have all kinds of other amazing attributes. But I see it as a, not as a flavor to civilization. It's not like a nice, pleasant after school program for entertainment. I view it as essential cognitive capacity. So let me um, invite you to think of, of this notion of our semiotic toolkit essentially has allowed for music, science, and religion. It's also as currently uh, playing out in modern culture has led to a very disembodied collective body. Essentially, um, I could make the case that the semiotic realm has numbed the body. We've over-cerebralized our existence and therefore not only numbed our body, but numbed a connection to nature as a result. Uh, so what might be the opportunity cost of um, this uh, line of thinking as well in terms of like, where, where's the human body? going to be in relation to this semiotic field? And then where is my individual body or our earthly bodies going to be in regards in relation to the earth body if we're merely just really dialing into sort of the cognitive capacity of our being? So 
I view that as one of many capacities. So first of all, um, our communities are physical places, and we really believe that <clears throat> housing and community are an appropriate scale and kind of place. Just a second, let me take a drink of water. Or, and, and that social networks is a really important place for this integration to happen. So all of this work I'm describing is place-based. So our kids are making things and learning music in place, in community with each other. In terms of embodiment, then, you know, we have a big wave of obesity with kids too. So we are working, so our, many of our projects have on-site yoga classes and, and exercise classes. And we have that for seniors, we have it for all ages and stuff. So we're, um, uh, and then community gardens, one of the, we're trying to weave more nature into our projects, but then there's only so much I can do at a project level. So in my book and in my advocacy work, I deeply talk about the integration of uh, nature into cities. And so what's interesting is if you either imagine or Google, what was the city of the future? Look at images of what was the city of the future from in the 1920s and 30s. And there were concrete places with kind of swirly, circular, pointy, tall buildings and all these roady things going around and little flying helicopter things. And they were gray and dark and concrete and steel and glass. And um, that's what they look like. And if you Google city of the future today and you look at the images of them, they have they're infused with nature. Their buildings are swathed with green coming down the sides of them. And, and you just see much higher density, much higher nature. Um, they still swirl their flyy things around in the sky, by the way. But um, it's very clear that humans deeply want to be connected to nature. We have a biophilia. I've written a bunch of things about biophilia. And you see this, for example, in cities like Singapore. So part, although my company's work is in America, uh, my book is about the cities of the world and I talk and advise, I've been involved in advising cities around the world. Anyway, an amazing model is Singapore, which is actually now requires all new buildings to be 50 stories tall, mixed use, mixed income, mixed race. And connecting that all with mass transit, uh, actually eliminating roads and turning them back into nature. So, if you, wow. so Singapore is becoming an increasingly green city. And they recognize that, by the way, the way we traditionally green cities is we kind of plant the same tree everywhere. So with a deep understanding commitment to biodiversity. But this last five to 10 minutes um, that you've shared um, a lot of threads from uh, Christopher Alexander's pattern language um, is emerging. Just curious on how big of an influence that uh, book has been on uh, your uh, life and thinking. So uh, I love the ideas. I haven't. I read some of it uh, many years ago, but you know, yeah, but, sure. he, but he's, but he, you know, I'm, I'm an integrator. So, you know, I, he, there's a work of many, his work is beautiful and, uh, and deep. And so I've had to integrate the work of lots of different, I've been lucky to be able to integrate the works of lots of different people into what I do. 
Nice. And with our last uh, few minutes, is there something that um, that we were touching on that longs for um, a little bit more articulation, or is there something that you'd like to share with uh, your closing comment, Jonathan? Yes. So um, I had the good fortune that the King of Bhutan read my book and uh, invited me then to come to Bhutan and work with the government on the greening of, of the integration of all these elements in its uh, cities. So here's a country that is, is a rising in, in wealth, but it's a poor country, so it has very limited resources, but it has a basically beautiful, compassion-focused Buddhist framework and a, and a whole commitment to gross national happiness and a measurement of gross national happiness. Um, and so, uh, and has all the issues of every other place in the world of siloed departments and don't, but incredibly good intentions and desire to do well. And so that um, uh, I've begun working with Bhutan's government. Um, and my sense is that entirely different, that all these lessons I have from America and from some of the other places around the world I've worked, but uh, uh, that, that there uh, just a very good sense of what might emerge from that. Um, the other thing I would add to this is just very briefly the story of the Garrison Institute. So uh, 15 years ago, my wife and I were given a monastery on the Hudson and now we're north of New York City in Garrison, New York. And we asked the question, what is the monastery of the 21st century? And we said it's a place of deep retreat and contemplation that draws from the world's lineage traditions of contemplation and then applies those lessons to the issues of civil society and the environment. And that's really where I learned the first things about toxic stress and trauma. Um, it's been an, an incredible learning uh, platform for me and engagement with a whole other amazing set of people. And um, so if there's a, uh, just a thread of, of wisdom and knowledge that comes from these traditions that, that also moves the, that I try and integrate into my work. For sure. We're here with Jonathan Rose, and um, I want to just briefly summarize uh, perhaps one of the more um, integrative uh, thinkers and practitioners and not only the field of housing, uh, community development, uh, environmental design, but the impact space as well. And, and as we talked more and more about regenerative life, whether it's regenerative agriculture, regenerative design, um, we look to folks like Jonathan Rose and his colleagues at his firm in New York City, but doing work um, throughout many cities throughout the United States for setting not only a good example, but creating models for us to uh, be able to share, uh, not only in the United States, but as you mentioned, um, work that's going on in Bhutan, work that's uh, pioneering in Singapore. So again, thank you so much, uh, Jonathan. We really feel fortunate to have uh, your voice as part of this collective inquiry into deep impact. Thank you so much for having me, Gina. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word.
by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com. <laughs>